morning, church. It is great to see you today. Uh, looking forward. Are you ready for the start of the holidays? Like it's Thanksgiving, and then like I feel like this is the week that we all get overwhelmed, right? Um, and so uh, I didn't mean to bring that up to overwhelm you right now, um, but uh, we're in this together, and I, I'm glad that we can be together and, and worship our hope our living hope, which is Jesus together. And I, I'm glad we get to continue in worship now uh, through the opening of God's Word. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and turn to the book of Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter 20. And if you, wanna, if you don't have a Bible with you and want to grab the Bible that's right in front of you, if you turn to page 61 in that black Bible, that is where you will find our passage today. Uh, and while you're turning there, we want you to know that if, if you, especially if you're a guest with us, you're new to our church, you're trying to figure out what we're all about, uh, we believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Uh, we believe that the Bible is inerrant in the original manuscripts and then has been sovereignly preserved for us through the generations so that through the reading of this book and the illumination of His Spirit, we can know God. We can love Him, we can follow Him, we can worship Him, and we believe so much in the sufficiency of God's Word that we don't think that what I'm about to say today matters at all unless it agrees with what God's word says. We want to collectively be a church that believes it doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what the Bible says. So what the Bible says needs to become what we think. And, and I don't expect you just to take my word for that. Uh, that. That conclusion that the Bible is the ultimate authority has tremendous ramifications for your life. Uh, so we want you to know where we stand. And we want you to know why we take the Bible so seriously as we open it up today in the book of Exodus. We're in this series through the Ten Commandments. And man, it has been so good to be reminded how relevant this series of instructions is and to see how it addresses so many significant, uh, significant issues in our daily lives. Uh, I, I believe we're going to see that once again uh, this morning. Our, our desire for this series is that God's commands would reveal his character. We want to know God, that his commands would reveal his character and that our salvation would result in our submission. And so we keep reminding ourselves before we jump in that, that, the, that we're not under the law. We are under grace if we are in Christ, and that's the best news ever, because the revealed law of God was never intended to be the basis of our justification. It was never intended to be what we point to and say, look at me. <laughs> look at how awesome I am. I'm the best. Look at all the things I've done. If that's what you're doing with God's word and God's law, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. It was intended to reveal our need for someone else to be righteous in our place. Uh, and so we have two commandments left. Uh, next week, we will ta be talking about, uh, we'll look at the command, do not covet, uh, which is timely on Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, today is a command that most people agree with in general, but still find a way to rationalize away all of the time. Uh, so we're going back up to Mount Sinai, where God's power and authority is just on full display. Uh, we want to keep that image of God's greatness and sovereignty fresh in our minds. It was a full-on pyrotechnic display on Mount Sinai, all caused by the God of the universe. The, the Israelites waiting at the bottom weren't even allowed to touch the mountain. This is not a weak God who's just making a few suggestions for us to potentially consider. Uh, and so let's start at the beginning, Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1 to get a running start into our commandment for this morning. Exodus 20, starting in verse 1, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. If you don't believe that verse, none of the rest of this matters. If, if, if you don't believe the Lord is your God, then you're going to find some other authority that you should listen to, maybe yourself, right? But if the Lord is your God, then what he says matters very much. Uh, and so God saves them, and then he gives them his instructions. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your house. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Those first four commands are all about our vertical relationship, our relationship with God. The last six commands are about our horizontal relationships with other people. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. That was last week. Remember, Jesus gave his life so glory stealers could become glory givers. And then verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Many people uh, know this command, and maybe when you think about this command, you don't think about those words. You don't think you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You think you shall not lie. Right? That's how a lot of us know it. Um, and God's law does forbid lying, but this command is more specific than that. And I, I want to talk about why. Uh, I think Philip Ryken is right when he points this out. The Ten Commandments tend to forbid the most extreme form of any particular sin. So the, Bible, so the Ten Commandments don't just say, thou shalt not hate. It says, thou shalt not murder. Right? Because murder is the worst form of of hatred. Adultery is the worst form of lust. Bearing false witness is the worst form of a lie. So is hatred itself a sin? Yes. Is lust itself a sin? Yes. Is lying itself a sin? Yes. And bearing a false witness is one of the worst forms because it leads to an innocent life being wrongly condemned. Bearing false witness destroys people's lives. Uh, the most obvious application of this command, especially within the nation of Israel, is within the judicial system, right? When people would testify in a case against another. And in an age, think back, in an age without surveillance systems and forensic evidence, the honesty of eyewitnesses was essential for justice to be able to be reached, and so when you're establishing a, a new nation and society, which is what God was doing with his chosen people, Israel, false testimonies that perpetuate injustice is a great threat to that new community and that new society that God was creating. And so there are other places in God's word and in God's law that forbid 
that, that speak against lying in general. Um, and that certainly is at the root of this command here. But the command is to not bear false witness against your neighbor because that is more specific and especially in dealing with the judicial system. And even in a day with lots of surveillance systems and with forensic evidence and with DNA evidence that we have now, false accusations still have the power to destroy people's lives. We know that, right? Uh, Because while people should be innocent until proven guilty in our justice system, they are not innocent until proven guilty in the court of public opinion, are they? And so this command is just as relevant today because false witnesses and false accusations still destroy, destroy people's lives. And, And so here's the revelation about the Lord our God behind this command. Why, why is this act of bearing a false witness against your neighbor such an offense to God? Uh, I, I think the answer is pretty obvious. It's because God is truth and God is justice. We serve a God of truth and justice. Uh, let me show you a couple places in, in some of Moses' writings. Uh, Numbers, chapter twenty-three, nineteen, on the screen. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man, that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is supposed to be obvious. If God says it, you can believe it. If, if he says he will do it, consider it done. Because our God is the God of truth. Psalm 119, 160, I think is very helpful for us. The sum of all your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. I love this verse because I think it helps us see that truth and justice are permanently linked. And the latter is dependent on the former. Truth and justice are, you can't separate them. And justice is dependent on truth. If you don't have truth, justice becomes impossible. That's why I cannot discipline the right child in my family of four children unless I know what really happened, right? I can't apply justice unless I first know the truth. But because we serve the God of all truth, that means that all of his rules and all of his rulings are righteous. There are sometimes as a parent, I discipline the wrong child because I don't have the truth. Have you ever made that mistake, parents? Right? And you believed a lie, and then you misapplied justice to a situation, and you feel terrible about it. But God never does that, because he is truth. And so all of his rules and all of his rulings are right and just. Which also means that if you want someone to question a law or a ruling... You just try to convince them to question whether the lawgiver is trustworthy. Think back to the Garden of Eden. Eve tells the serpent that God said that if they eat the fruit from the forbidden tree, they would surely die. What was Satan's response? You're not going to die. You're not going to die. God doesn't want you to be like him. So Satan doesn't get Eve to question the command as much as he gets her to question the trustworthiness of the command giver, the trustworthiness of God. Doubting the truth of the law giver caused her to question the law, which is why the biggest lie you will ever hear is the lie that there is no truth. 
from, from a Christian perspective, someone saying that there is no truth is saying that there is no God. Because God is truth. The biggest lie you will ever hear is that there is no truth. Because if there is no truth, there is no law. At least not universally speaking. If everything is relative, as postmodernism would like us to believe, if, if I have my truth and, and you have your truth, or who do you think you are to tell me that, 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 that what I'm doing is wrong or what I believe is wrong, it's, it's all relative, you do me, you, and, and I'll, do, I'll do me, and, and the natural end to that way of thinking is not justice, it is chaos. It's chaos. And amazingly... Truth, being relative, is presented under the guise of freedom. You can do whatever you want. You can decide truth for yourself. But freedom is not found in determining your own truth. Freedom is found in submission to the truth. That's why Jesus said in John 8.32, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Submission to the truth is where freedom is found, not determining it for yourself. So the world may believe that truth is relative, but we believe God is truth. Amen, church? We, we, we believe that. We believe that. There is ultimate objective truth, and he is the Lord our God. Truth is first who he is, and then it is what he says. And because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that means ultimate truth does not change. Because God does not change. What was true then is true now because God is a present tense God. He's the great I am. And that is great news. That is great news. Because in a world that is in a constant state of flux, truth is unchanging. Because God is unchanging. So, why is bearing false witness such an offense against God? Because it is the antithesis of who he is. It is the antithesis of who he is. With God, there is no falsehood and there is no injustice. And, and, and see, people love to create scenarios where lying seems justified. Right? We like to present these hypothetical, well, what about this? We do this a lot with, with lying. Well, what about people who were hiding Jews from Nazis in Germany? Was it okay for them to lie? And, and hypotheticals can be fun. I, I enjoy a good hypothetical. But hopefully we can agree with this. Lying never reflects who God is. And we were created to reflect who God is. Lying never reflects who our God is, and we were created to reflect who God is. Uh, I would hesitate to condone any behavior that is the antithesis of the God who tells me to be like him. And, and, and further, let's be honest, it's a good thing for this topic, none of us lie because we are hiding Jewish people in our basement from Nazis. Uh, we just don't want to go to the party, and it's easier to say that we're busy than that we don't want to go, right? Um, are there scenarios in the Bible where a lie wasn't explicitly condemned? Can, can you tell I've had these conversations before? Like, there's lots of scenarios. I, I, I know that there are, and I'm happy to talk about more of them. Sure, there's scenarios in the Bible where lying isn't explicitly condemned. Rahab wasn't condemned for deceiving in order to keep Israel's spies safe. 
But that has nothing to do with whether you're honest with your tax return. Right? And it has nothing to do with whether you're honest with your employer or with your kids or with your spouse or with your friends or with your neighbor. It has nothing to do with any of those things. I wish that these unique hypotheticals were the only situations that we would consider lying. Wouldn't that be great if the only time people lied is when they're trying to keep someone safe from someone else? That, that would be a much better society than the one that we live in. But for many, it is much more of a regular occurrence because while God is truth and God is justice, we are deceptive. This is the confrontation. This is what this command confronts in us. We are deceptive. There's a reason that this command is needed. Jeremiah 17.9 says it well. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick, who can understand it? Just like you didn't have to teach your child how to steal, you didn't have to teach them how to lie either, did you, parents? That was just, once again, pre-downloaded hardware that came with the child, right? Because we all have hearts that are naturally deceptive. And and sometimes kids are are so bad at lying, at least at first, that it's hard for it not to be hilarious, Um, right? Because they claim that they didn't take any cookies without realizing that Oreos leave a lot of evidence behind. Like, so, so much evidence. It's hard for that not to be funny. Uh, Other times, it's almost scary how natural and believable the lies of our own children can be. Uh, Pastor John was handing out uh, bags of chips uh, to kids recently, And to keep it general, to not incriminate the guilty, let's say they were between the ages of four and seven, um, and one of the kids came up to him and said, I'm allergic to chips. Can I have the cookies instead? And Pastor John said, no, those are for a different group, to which the kid responded, okay, I'll have the chips then. (laughs) Pastor John is a, a real detective. He's like, you're not really allergic to chips, are you? He was not. He was not. He ate the chips very happily. Who taught them to do that? Who taught that child to do that? The same person that taught my kids to try to hide their vegetables instead of eating them, right? No one taught them that. They, they, their hearts are naturally deceptive. Our hearts are naturally deceptive. And then we learn from other people with deceptive hearts how to be even more deceptive. And, and I don't think deception is something that we grow out of. I think it's something that we get better at hiding. Um, and, and it is so much a part of our culture that you'll even hear people brag about it. Have you ever heard someone brag about being a really good liar? Have you heard that? Congratulations. Right? Or have you ever heard someone lament being a bad liar? I'm sorry? Like, am I supposed to feel bad about that? Um, and and, and I'll, I'll just say, I'm consistently discouraged by how much, especially because I interact with them, younger generations, including my own, are very nonchalant about this. Um, it is so much a part of, of, of dating culture, right? <laughs> what a great way to start a relationship just with a bunch of lies, Right? But everyone expects the other one to do it, and it's almost like everyone's okay with it. Our hearts are so deceptive that we deceive ourselves into thinking that deception isn't really a sin. People lie a lot, usually just for the sake of our own convenience or to make ourselves look better. It's not just politicians, and it's not just attorney, and it's, and it's not just golfers, although <laughs> it happens. Uh, we, we have a lot, we have all had to learn to take what people say with a massive grain of salt, haven't we? 
it's hard to know who we can trust. Um, and if you don't, if you don't take what people say with a massive grain of salt, um, you're probably not walking through life in a very wise way, right? Some of you are inclined to believe everything that you read on Facebook, and then you share it, and you probably shouldn't. And it might look really convincing, but it also might be AI-generated. And it's a scary, scary world out there. People lie to us. News organizations lie to us. Governments lie to us. It's really hard to know who we can trust. There is brokenness in our world because there is brokenness in our own hearts. And with dishonesty and deception so ingrained in our world, I believe so many people are just desperate for truth. Right? Anywhere they can find it, they just want to know the truth because without it, we have no foundations, no foundation for our lives. Um, and and I, I, I don't know what to do if I don't know what I can believe. Have you ever felt paralyzed because you don't know the truth? Like, what am I supposed to do? I don't know what's right. I don't know what's true. And, and, and then people in that desperate situation are often given the worst advice possible. If you want to find truth, look within yourself. No! Anywhere but there, right? Don't do that. Look, look, look at the screen. Don't do that. Don't do that. Okay, I'll look online. No! Don't do that either, right? Uh, some of you trust Google a lot more than you trust people, right? But no, that's a bad idea too. So, so what do we do? What do we do in this? Because we are all stuck in this mess of deception because that's the way our hearts are. Uh, God is calling us to be different, to be a people who stand for truth. This is how Christians should be known. Because yes, we have hearts that are naturally deceptive, but Jesus came to transform our hearts. For those of us who are in Christ, we have a new identity. We have a new nature. We have the truth of the word in front of us, and we have the spirit of truth in us, so we will no longer be deceptive people, but rather truth-filled people. This is what enables us to enjoy community with each other. We are children of light, not of darkness and deception. And when we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with each other. In fact, I just want to lean into this. I want you to know that honesty and truth are even more important than you think. They're even more important than you think, both within our church community and then in our world. Ephesians 4, I think, lays this out so well. Look at Ephesians 4 on the screen. It's verses 11 through 15. And talking about the church, the Apostle Paul says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, church leaders, to do what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. We talk about that a lot. We believe that the leaders of the church are there to equip believers to do the work of the ministry. You don't just watch the professionals do it. You are involved. You get to be part of this. It's all of our mission together for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that's talking about sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind 
wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. So we have a world out there that is so deceptive, right? And it tells us all sorts of other things. And Paul doesn't want us just to be tossed back and forth by all the deception out there. So what do we do instead here? Rather, speaking the truth in love. That's how we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Speaking the truth in love is what enables sanctification. It's what enables us to become more like Jesus. This passage is saying that honesty is essential to both spiritual maturity and to Christian community. Do you see it? Honesty is essential to both spiritual maturity and to Christian community because when trust is broken, community is lost. So this is why we don't gossip about people. This is why we don't share and spread anything we read or hear without verifying it first. This is why we don't tear each other down in order to prop ourselves up. That might be what the broken world does, but that's not what should define a Christian community. We are called to be a people who say the honest thing when it is our duty to say so in a loving way. We aren't, needless, we aren't needlessly criticizing people under the guise of, I have to be honest, right? Because we all know someone that uses honesty as an excuse just to be mean, right? That's not what we're doing. Uh, we put so much thought into constructing these perfect lies, but we can't be bothered to figure out how to be both kind and truthful? I don't believe that. If we just took the time that we took to like, generate lies that sound believable and just put that into, how can I be kind and truthful today? I think, I think the Holy Spirit of God would enable us to do it. We, we say the honest thing when it is our duty to say so in a loving way. That's how unity is built and how maturity in Christ is reached. So Paul goes on right after this, and you should read Ephesians 4, it's so good, to talk about how we have put off the old self and have put on the new self. Uh, and the old self is corrupt with deceitful desires, right? But we have the new self created in the likeness of God. And then verse 25 summarizes all of it. What's the very first implication of putting off the old self and putting on the new self? Verse 25, therefore, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are all members one of another. The very first implication of being transformed by the gospel and brought into the community of faith, the very first calling card of Christianity is this, we tell the truth and we do it with love. That's what's supposed to be true of us. We don't justify or rationalize falsehood. We put it away. That's not who we are anymore if we are in Christ. We are different. And I don't want this to be a guilt trip because that doesn't bring transformation. But if the spirit of truth is inside you, that should change what comes out of you. I wake up every day, and I would suggest you do the same. I wake up every day, and I ask the Holy Spirit to fill my life. And one of the reasons I do that is because I know that the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And if the Holy Spirit is in control of my heart, then what is true is what should come out of my mouth. And in the world, right, we have no idea who or what we can trust. It is wild out there. And you're frustrated by it. And, and maybe a lot of you are disenchanted with a lot of things and you don't feel like you have any foundation for your life. It's crazy. But here, here, 
we should be able to trust each other because our hearts have been transformed by the spirit of truth. And it is not only essential for our Christian community, it is also essential for our testimony to the world. Uh, that, that, that leads us to the promise I think we should see in the command to not bear false witness against our neighbor. Because God is truth and justice, even though our hearts are naturally deceptive, and, and we see this law broken over and over again, you read the Old Testament and you are reading about a bunch of liars and a bunch of deceivers. But God wasn't done with us. And part of his plan of redemption was to give us a true testimony. This is the gospel. That God designed the world to reveal the truth about who he is. But mankind followed the deceiver instead of the truth. And so into a world of deceivers who had been deceived, truth came. When Jesus came, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Truth. Jesus revealed who God truly is because he is God himself, truth personified. To people in darkness, light came. To people who were lost, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I failed to live. And then he was arrested, illegally tried, and crucified. They had people who bore a false witness against their neighbor, and their neighbor was Jesus. Human justice failed that day, but the justice of God never fails. Because on the cross, Jesus hung in the place of sinners like me, taking the punishment that we deserve for the sins that we had committed against him. He paid the debt that we could never afford to pay to a holy God. And then he rose from the dead. He conquered sin and the grave. He ascended into heaven, promising to return. So if you place your faith in the perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of Jesus, if you say, Jesus, I need you to be in charge. I need you to be the king of my life. All of your sins are forgiven. The righteousness of Jesus is credited to your formerly guilty account. You become part of the eternal kingdom of God. You can know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The good news of the gospel is that truth can be known because Jesus has made himself known. And then Jesus chose us to bring the truth of who he is to the world. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would come to empower his people to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so if you want to see the transformation of the gospel, you can read the book of Acts and you can see believers bearing a true witness. Disciples of Jesus dragged into court over and over again. Peter and John before the council in Acts chapter 4. Peter, who on the night when Jesus was arrested, was a false witness. Right? He denied even knowing him. Right? And then the resurrection happens, and the Holy Spirit fills Peter's life, and he's completely changed. And so in Acts 4, he says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And the council tried to get him to stop testifying about Jesus, and Peter said, We can't help it. 
We can't help but say what we have seen and what we have heard. They arrest them again in Acts chapter 5, and Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. We are witnesses of these things. And Peter shares the truth of the gospel again. Acts chapter 7, Stephen is brought before the council, and starting with Abraham, he testifies to the truth of who Jesus is. Acts 22 through 28 is one courtroom scene after another where Paul shares his testimony again and again and again until he finally gets to share it with Caesar in Rome. This is the transformation of the gospel. Instead of a false witness against our neighbor, we are true witnesses for our Savior. Do you believe that? We are not false witnesses against our neighbor. No, no, no. We've been transformed. We are true witnesses for our Savior. And how can we expect people to listen to our true testimony when we don't live with honesty and integrity? It's more important than you think. It's more important than you think. Lies and deception are the antithesis of our identity in Christ and our witness for Christ. The gospel transforms our lives into a true testimony of the one true God. The gospel transforms our lives into a true testimony of the one true God. Is that, is that what's happened in your life? When you read that, do you say, yes, that's what my life looks like? Have you put away falsehood? Because that's not who you are anymore. And instead, do you share the true testimony of the one true God? Most of you know how passionate I am about disciples making disciples. We want every follower of Jesus to be equipped to share the truth of the gospel with people who are dying to find truth. The mission of the gospel is far too important for us to be losing credibility over for the sake of our convenience. It's far too important. So do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Instead, speak the truth and love to one another and share the truth of Jesus with others. That's what we're called to. That's our identity in Christ. Amen, church? Let's pray for each other. Heavenly Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you that we have something we can stand on. Thank you that you are our rock and our redeemer in the midst of just the storm and waves of deception that are around us. And so I pray that we would not be like the world, but that the transformation of the gospel, the transformation of your spirit would cause us to be truthful, to be honest, to be people of integrity, to speak the truth and love to one another so we can have a Christ-like community, so we can share the truth of Jesus with the world. Thank you for giving us a testimony of what you've done. And I pray we would share it with people that are so desperate for truth, especially during this holiday season. Thank you for who you are and what you've done, that you haven't given up on us, but you still have a purpose and a plan for us. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.